We are looking together at the book of Romans. And this morning we're going to turn to Romans chapter 2. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1129. And in the large print Bibles, 1746. And as you're turning there, remember that we're in a section of this book where Paul is answering a particular question. He's answering the question, who needs the gospel? In the passage we looked at last week, Paul began to answer this question. He showed us clearly that pagan, irreligious people need the gospel. People who turn away from God and even deny that God exists. People who indulge in obvious idolatry and sexual immorality. Their lives broadcast the fact that they are ignoring God and flouting God's commands. Paul said those kind of people are guilty in God's sight, and they are under God's wrath. Now, there will be plenty of people, there would have been among Paul's first audience, and there are today, plenty of people who listen to chapter 1, and their response is, fair enough, Paul. I agree with what you've said. And honestly, I'm quite glad you've stood up and said it. Those people you described are sinners. But just to be clear, Paul, you haven't described me. I'm not suppressing the truth about God. I'm here in church. And I'm not involved in sexual immorality. I live a straight-laced, moral, God-acknowledging life. Maybe those people you've described deserve wrath and hell, but not me. I'm not like that. Paul knows very well that's how some people will react to chapter 1. And he turns to speak to those people now in chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 16. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, 
than for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. This is God's word. And in this passage, Paul sets out the bad news for religious people. Now, before we go any further, let me clarify what I mean by the word religious. The Bible speaks about religion in more than one way. Positively, there's the kind of religion that flows from a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ, where men and women love God and listen to God and live in dependence on God's Holy Spirit. That kind of life is religious in the good sense of the word. God has given you new life, and you're living out that new life. But the Bible also presents a very different kind of religion, and it's not positive at all. In this negative sense, the religious person is a man or woman who believes that by living a certain way and doing certain things, they can earn God's acceptance. They can deserve his blessing. Those people are not living in dependence on God's mercy. They're depending on themselves. Their confidence is in their own effort and their own achievement. We saw an example of this kind of religion earlier in our reading from Luke's Gospel. The Pharisee, a very religious man, stood up and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. I do good things, the Pharisee said. That kind of religion is about trying to manipulate God. It's about believing that he owes you because of the good things you do and the bad things you avoid. So when I say Romans chapter 2 is bad news for religious people, it's that second sense of the word religious that I have in mind. The person who thinks they stand on the moral high ground compared to other people. Even if he or she wouldn't claim to be perfect, they at least believe they're closer to it than other people are. What that means is we as a group of people are more likely to be unsettled by Romans chapter 2 than we were by Romans chapter 1. Now, there may be some of you here who deny God's existence. Maybe some of you are openly 
living in idolatry and sexual immorality. But by and large, that is not going to describe the majority of us here this morning. You and I are more likely to be tempted to believe that our moral lifestyle and our church attendance and our good deeds put us in a better position before God than those pagans and atheists out there. But if we're tempted to feel that way, Paul has three things to say to us. First of all, in verses 1 to 5, those who feel superior are also guilty and facing God's wrath. We know the pagans and the secular people mentioned in chapter 1 are guilty and facing God's wrath. But now Paul turns to those who might be feeling self-satisfied and he says in verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. The word therefore means Paul is following on from what he said at the end, or at least in the second half of chapter 1. And the list of sins that he gave at the end of chapter 1. Someone has said that this verse, chapter 2 verse 1, comes as a bucket of cold water to the religious person. That person may avoid spectacular public sins. But when it comes to sinful attitudes of the heart, the attitudes listed at the end of chapter 1, greed, envy, malice, arrogance, lovelessness, mercilessness, when it comes to those sins, the person who feels superior is actually just as guilty. They might not wear a t-shirt that says greed is good, but they're still greedy. They do still envy what other people have. They're not satisfied with what they've got. They want their own way. They bend the truth to suit themselves. Their ultimate faithfulness is to themselves. They might not flaunt their sin, but they do still indulge in it. They might do a good job of keeping the idols of their heart hidden, but they have those idols just like everyone else. It's been said that when it comes to sin, we are to look at our hearts before looking at our hands. In other words, Don't think you're okay because you haven't murdered anyone lately. Because you don't have blood on your hands. Think about the attitudes of your heart. How often have you felt contempt for another human being? How often have you dehumanized someone in your heart? How often have you looked at another person as if they're nothing more than an object to be used rather than a human being made in the image of Almighty God. 
a life that's valuable to God and has the potential to glorify God. How often have you despised someone because they got in your way? Either literally in your way or in the way of you getting what you want. Jesus himself said that kind of heart attitude is just as worthy of hell as the kind of murder you do with your hands. The point is, we're not to think other people deserve God's judgment while at the same time excusing ourselves. In verse 3, Paul says, do you think you can escape God's judgment yourself? And of course, the person who lives a fairly moral, upstanding life might well say, actually, yes. I know I'm not perfect. I'll admit I'm not a saint. But I just don't agree that I deserve the same as those who deny God's existence and openly flout his laws. I just don't accept that. Paul's reply is that when we admit we're not perfect, but go on to excuse our imperfections, we are, verse 4, showing contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. It's only because of God's patience and kindness that we haven't already been consumed by his wrath. But when any of us excuse our sin and minimize it, we are denying that we even need God's patience and kindness. Paul says the proper response is to come to God in repentance over our sin. Not to try and explain it away by comparing it to other people's sin. And if we stop and look at ourselves and search ourselves, How often have we found that whole approach in our own hearts? God in his kindness convicts you or me about some sin. Maybe a lack of honesty or integrity in something that we've done. Maybe we've doctored some figures a little bit. Maybe we've twisted the truth a little bit. Maybe we've been convicted about our greed for bigger and better things. Or because we've been spreading some juicy information about another person. God prods us about it. And yet instead of acknowledging our sin and turning to him for forgiveness, we try to excuse it by blaming somebody else. That's what Adam and Eve did when they got caught in their sin. Adam said to God, Eve made me do it. And Eve said, the snake made me do it. Or we can try to justify ourselves by listing off somebody else's sins. That's like a child who's caught drawing on the wall with a biro and tries to excuse himself by pointing to someone else and saying, but he's drawing on the wall with a marker. Excusing or explaining away our sin is showing contempt 
for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. And look what Paul says in verse 5. Because of that stubbornness, because of the unrepentant heart that lies behind that stubbornness, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. In chapter 1, we learned that God's wrath is being revealed now, today. It's seen in lives that are lived in slavery to sin. For example, the sexually promiscuous person is obviously a slave to their bodily urges. You can tell that by looking at them. But the person who's living an outwardly moral, upright life is not going to display their slavery to sin. There may be no obvious signs they're under God's wrath. But Paul says here, whatever things look like today, on the final judgment day, when God's wrath is going to be revealed in an ultimate way, then it will be clear that person has been storing up wrath for themselves. However good they looked on the outside. It could be that for some of us here this morning, these verses are a call to wake up. When you and I stand before the eyes of God, we will stand alone. God's verdict will not be based on a comparison with the people around us. Sometimes exams are marked that way. Some years an A might be easier or harder to get depending on the overall standard that year. So if most people scored in the 40s, but you got a 50, well, it might not be great, but you're still top of the class that year. But God doesn't operate that way. It doesn't matter if I have Hitler standing on one side of me and Jimmy Savile standing on the other. The pride that rises up in my own heart because I think I'm better, that pride in itself is more than enough to condemn me. It's idolatry. It means that I'm glorifying myself rather than glorifying God. It might be hidden idolatry, It might be in the heart of an outwardly moral religious person, but it's still idolatry. And as he follows on from that, Paul says in verses 6 to 11, God's judgment is based on the evidence found in our lives. Look at those verses again, beginning at verse 6. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, 
first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. If we remember the context of these verses, then we'll realize Paul is not offering us hope here. He's not saying we can do enough to impress God and gain eternal life. Verses 1 to 5 have shown very clearly that we cannot do that. What Paul is doing here is simply reminding us we will be judged on the basis of our works. What we do. That is standard biblical teaching. For example, in 2 Corinthians we read this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Earlier we said that we're to look at our hearts before looking at our hands. In other words, we can't claim we're good just because we look good on the outside. But it's also true that over the course of our lives, our hands will show the reality of what's in our heart. The things we do, sooner or later, will reveal the condition of our heart. For a while, it's possible, yes, to act in certain ways, to pretend to be something that we're not. But over the long haul, the reality of what we are will be seen in what we do. A boastful heart will sooner or later produce boastful words. A deceitful heart will sooner or later produce deceitful actions. A disobedient heart will produce disobedience. An unloving heart will do something unloving. Now, sometimes people do manage to keep those sinful actions hidden over the course of their lives. They manage to cover the tracks of their behavior. And maybe it doesn't come out until they're dead and gone. We've seen that in the media, haven't we? People can cover their tracks in terms of the understanding of the people around them. But both our hearts and our hands are completely visible to God all of the time. You and I will not be judged on how successfully we hid our sin. We will be judged on the reality of our sin. That's why Paul says in verse 11, God does not show favoritism. In other words, on the judgment day, no one's going to have an advantage because they managed a better performance in the eyes of the people around them. Back in verse 2, Paul said God's judgment is based on truth. In verse 16, he goes on to say God judges people's secrets. Jesus said the same thing to religious people. He said, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. So there is no comfort for any of us when God says we're going to be judged on what we have done. 
God has every word recorded on his MP3 player. He has every glance recorded on his camera. And when you and I realize that, doesn't it make us squirm? And that's before we even get to the thoughts that God knows. The sinner who convinces everybody else that he's squeaky clean has no advantage over the person whose sin is obvious. God cannot be conned that way. And so Paul tells us, what matters is not human credentials, but new hearts. Over many years, Paul traveled thousands of miles sharing the good news about Jesus. Those travels are recorded for us in the book of Acts. And as Paul traveled, he spoke to people from both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds. And as they listened to Paul's message, many of the Jews were prompted to say to him, yes, but Paul, what about my Jewishness? Doesn't that count for something with God? Doesn't that give me an in with God or a leg up or a head start or something? Those kind of questions from religious people were the forerunners to people's questions today. Yes, but I've been christened. Or I used to go to Sunday school. Or I do go to church. Don't those things count for something? Paul himself is from a religious Jewish background, and he's very aware of those questions. He's shown his awareness by using this phrase, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. He used it in chapter 1, and he's already used it twice here in verses 9 and 10. He's acknowledged this idea that Jews are first somehow. Religious people are first somehow. He knows that's what people are going to say to him when they hear this. And in these final verses, verses 12 to 16, he deals with a particular issue the Jews would have raised with him often. What about God's law, Paul? Contained in the first five books of the Bible. God didn't give that law to every nation, Paul. He called Israel's leader, Moses, up on Mount Sinai. He gave the law to him. And the Jews said, surely, Paul, that proves we do have an advantage. But look at Paul's response in verse 13. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Paul says, having the law and studying the law and hearing the law preached, none of those things put you in the right with God. The question is, do you obey the law God gave you? And his point is, none of you do obey it. None of you do keep the law perfectly. I've just proved that a few verses ago.
In this part of his letter, Paul is working very hard to show that everyone, everyone stands condemned before God. Those with a privileged religious heritage and a religious upbringing and a religious knowledge, they're in the same boat as the irreligious, out-of-control pagans they feel superior to. And the boat they're all in is headed to eternal wrath. So the application for you and me is, you may have grown up in church. You may know all the answers in the Bible quiz. You may have been to church more than 95% of other British people. You may never have denied God's existence or committed adultery or murder. But you are still condemned before God because of the evidence of your, he- your heart and your hands. You are a guilty sinner like everyone else. Why is Paul doing this? Why is he pulling the rug from under all of us? Why is he tearing down our confidence in ourselves? It's very hard for us to hear. Why is he doing it? He's doing it so that we'll let go of every human hope for our salvation. When we do that, then we're ready to hear the good news. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners. That is our only hope. We've heard Paul say that we will be repaid for what we have done. We've heard him say that those who obey the law will be declared righteous. And so at this point, we might have a question. We might say, I can see that we're all condemned by what we've done by our hearts and by our hands. Paul has shown that well enough. And I can see that I can be forgiven if I turn from my sin and trust in Jesus. But how does that help me live a life of obedience? Why does God demand obedience if we can't do it? Another way to put it is, can we ever do deeds that please God? That's something Paul will say more about as the letter goes on. But the short answer is Jesus is our only hope for that too. He did live a life that pleased God perfectly. He is the truly righteous one. When we put our trust in Jesus, his perfect life is credited to us. God's verdict is based on what Jesus has done. And then, having pronounced that verdict, God enables us to begin doing good ourselves. The order of this is really important. When we come to God in repentance, trusting in Jesus, then we're forgiven. His goodness is credited to us. And we also receive His Holy Spirit. And then, only then, we can begin to live lives that please God. Paul will deal with that later. 
But he does give a little preview of it here in verses 14 and 15. Notice in those verses, he talks about Gentiles, non-Jews, who do things required by God's law, even though they don't have the law. In other words, they didn't grow up being taught God's law. But they begin to live lives that please God. And Paul explains why that is. Because, verse 15, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. What does he mean? Well, he's referring to a promise God made back in the Old Testament. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised that he would make a new covenant. And as part of that new covenant, he would put his law in men and women's minds and he would write it on their hearts. The promise was that through God's work in people's hearts, men and women would have the ability to live in ways that please God. Obeying him would no longer be against their nature. They would have a new nature, a new heart. That was God's new covenant promise. And Jesus announced that he'd come to sign that new covenant with his blood on the cross. So even here, as Paul does the important work of giving us all the bad news, even as he tells us that outwardly good people are sinners too, at the same time, Paul is pointing us to our only hope. Is telling us we are not condemned to a life of trying to act good. If we will humble ourselves and accept this good news about Jesus, then our sin will be forgiven. And with a new heart, enabled by God's Holy Spirit, we can begin one step at a time to live for God. Our obedience gives evidence of God's work in us. It's not a way to earn God's favor. That is true religion. And it's a whole different world from religion that's based on human efforts and human pride about our achievements. We're going to close with an opportunity to respond to what we've heard. We're going to sing two songs. And the first one of these songs says, I come into your presence with nothing in my hands. No goodness of my own. Jesus is my only hope. Let's stand and sing together. Jesus is my only hope. And then, who, O Lord, could save themselves?